Hello and welcome to RipperCast, a podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 64, The Real Mary Kelly with Wynn West and Davies. I'm Jonathan Mangus and joining me on the show today is Paul Begg, co-author with Martin Fido and Keith Skinner of the Jack the Ripper A to Z, co-author with John Bennett of Jack the Ripper The Forgotten Victims, and the sole author of The Definitive History and Jack the Ripper The Facts. Paul is also an editor of Ripperologist Magazine, and it's coming to us today from Maidstone, Kent, in the UK. Robert McLaughlin is the author of the first Jack the Ripper victim photographs, and is coming to us from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And our special guest is author Wynne Weston Davies, an experienced surgeon and anatomist whose genealogical research into his own family tree and an attempt to trace the fate of a long-lost great-aunt, Elizabeth Weston Davies, has led him to conclude that she could very possibly be the real Mary Kelly. When, as you're well aware, research into the lives of the victims of Jack the Ripper has become a major component of Ripperology, especially since the dawn of the internet age, and several prominent researchers have spent years of their time and their money in the attempt to finally identify the woman considered by many to be the final victim of Jack the Ripper, Mary Jane Kelly. They have again and again come up short of discovering any promising evidence that could lead to the solution to this mystery. At the same time, ripperologists have had to witness authors coming in typically from outside the field, publishing books that usually claim some kind of family connection, most typically to the murderer, and promote a solution to Mary Kelly's true identity that is very quickly revealed by Ripper experts after examining the available public records to be wholly incorrect. So would you tell us a little bit about your family history and what led you to attempt to resolve the disappearance of your great-aunt Elizabeth, who seemingly vanished forever in the late summer of 1885? Yes, I came at this not at all from a Jack the Ripper perspective. I, I didn't have any particular interest beyond the normal sort of public curiosity. I knew, knew the name, and I'd read a little bit about it, but I, had, I certainly didn't set out to try and uncover anything to do with the Jack the Ripper story at all. Many years ago, um, I'd been interested in the history of my family, like most people are, but my father um, was completely reticent about his own father's side of the family. I should explain my, that my father, who died in 1996, was a writer himself. Um, he wrote uh, under a writing name and is possibly best remembered as the uh, author of the first uh, James Bond script, Dr. No. Um, so he was a professional writer and a great raconteur. He loved telling stories, which made it all the more odd that he wouldn't say anything at all about his own father's side of the family. He'd speak freely about his mother's side of the family, but as soon as you asked him about his father, he would just clam up. And he wouldn't say anything about his own, own father's side of the family, and I used to say, well, look, he's my grandfather, and so on. I, you know, I'd like to know. No, nope, he wouldn't say anything. And then just before he died, probably about six months before he died, I had one further attempt. And uh, he said, no, no, you, you don't want to know about that side of the family. They, they were a bad lot. Uh, in fact, one of the women was a prostitute in London. Um, that, of course, got me quite uh, interested. And it was a... It was just all... That was all he said. He, 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 uh, he wouldn't say anything more. But 
he died about six months after that. And, of course, I immediately tried to find out who this woman had been. In fact, to find out more about his side of the family in general. Um, I did know a certain amount about them because I had been doing a bit of family research in the background. So I knew who his father was and, and who he'd married and a bit about, about the family, but not in great detail. And so I then started to look at, the, at my father's father and his immediate siblings. And I fairly quickly managed to trace most of them, except for one sister, Elizabeth. She was present in all of the um, censuses up, to, up until 17, uh, 1871. And um, I had a birth certificate and that sort of thing. And then she just disappeared. I, I couldn't trace her after 1871, except for a possible um, sighting of her in 1881, as a servant in um, in London, uh, just behind Londonbury House, I then discovered that her mother had worked as a lady's maid to Lady Londonbury, the Marchioness of Londonbury, and that I got so started on on that line, if you like. And then I discovered that uh, Elizabeth had been married. I, I was in the National Archives and waiting for another document to arrive, and I did an index search under Weston Davies, and Weston Davies is a pretty unusual name. There are, there's, certainly in the 19th century, there were no other family that used the Weston Davies uh, names. And um, so I'd done a search on Weston Davies, and up came a, a Weston Jones. And I, at first, was about to dismiss this, and then I thought, that's funny, I've never come across a Weston Jones either. So I sent for the documents, and it turned out to be the divorce petition of Francis Spursheim Craig. And it started off by saying that he was divorcing, uh, he wanted to divorce his wife, Elizabeth Weston Davies, who had falsely described herself as Elizabeth Weston Jones. So that was where, where it all started. I then obviously started to look at uh, who Francis Spursheim Craig was and discovered that he was the son of a well-known socialist pioneer called E.T. Craig, who'd had a lot written about him, papers and biographies and things, but none of them mentioned a son or indeed any children at all. And I got in touch with one of his biographers, uh, Professor Alan Evans in the uh, Queen's University Belfast, and he said, well, look, I was totally unaware that the, that the uh, Craigs had any children, um, so you know, anything you can tell me, I'd be interested in. And um, I, I went on researching this man, and, and really, it's, it's been very difficult. There isn't, there's not a lot you can find out about Francis Craig, to the extent that I think his parents might even have tried to um, keep him away from the public, as it were. He lived most of his life under their roof. Uh, even though he was a reporter and a journalist, he really, it was only the... the the couple of years that he was in America and the, the sort of three or three and a half years that he was in the East End and following his marriage that he was away from home. Otherwise, he was always under his parents' roof. What did the uh, petition for divorce, or some have called it a, a, actually a petition for the dissolution of the marriage, what did it tell us about his marriage to Elizabeth Weston Davies? Well, it told us that it was very brief. He starts by mentioning the, the, the houses in which they lived and cohabited, and it all 
it was a period of, of, of just over three months. They lived in, uh, first of all, in Stepney, then in uh, Argyle Square in uh, St Pancras, and uh, also the, the, he mentions the family home at the beginning, and that's where, they, where he'd been living when they got married. So it was extremely brief marriage, and, um, and then clearly she, she left him, and that's when he started to try and follow her, and I believe that he must have employed private detectives because it's sort of written in the third person that she was observed going in and out of various houses and so on. So I think he was spending money on, on having her followed. He certainly initially asked his friends to, or well, he didn't have many friends, but acquaintances to help him to, to, to find her. And this, this came out at his own inquest many years later. So he appeared to be quite keen to get her back, and then she was spotted taking a young man into a private hotel, and it became quite obvious that she was living and working as a prostitute. And this clearly is a surprise to him. I don't think he knew that at the time he, he married her. And what years are we talking about here, when? This is early 1885. They, they were married on Christmas Eve, uh, 1884, I think the reason they were married on that particular day was his father was in, at that stage involved in a huge political fracas. His father was a friend and political ally of William Morris, who was another great English social reformer and early member of the socialist movement. And Morris had fallen out with another uh, of, of the of the, um, I'm trying to remember, the, it was a, the Socialist, um, I was going to say Socialist Workers League, I'm trying to remember the name, actual name of it, but anyway, the, the political organisation they all belonged to, there'd been a big falling out and, and it split up. And over the few days over that Christmas, um, the Morris was actually getting his friends around him to break away and form a breakaway movement. And I think that kept the craze, um, the, the father and mother, away from home. And I think Francis took that opportunity to to quickly get married to this, this woman who he probably had only met uh, a short time before. And um, then they, they say, only were only together for about three months before she left in probably about April, May of uh, 1885. She was, she was seen several times between then and August 1885 with various other men, including one that was named as a correspondent in the petition, uh, Henry McLean, and then the record just goes quiet. After that, there's no sightings of her at all. And clearly he was unable to serve the petition on her, so the divorce never went through. It never happened because she couldn't be found to serve the papers on Elizabeth Davies's mother, Anne, which would be your great-grandmother. Correct, yes. She became employed as a lady's maid to the Marchioness of Londonderry. Yes. And then Elizabeth Davies followed her um, into the same role yes, around I, I, 1880-1881. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, I, I haven't got absolute evidence for that. Um, there's, a sen there's a census citing which... I think is her, because I've, I've searched the censuses very, very carefully um, over many, many years trying to find her. And there's one similar one. Are we similar referring one. to Elizabeth or Anne? Elizabeth, Elizabeth. Okay. In you 1881. Have, you have confirmation that Anne was 
um, I, I, I think there's no doubt, whatever, that Anne was um, was um, lady's maid to the Marchioness. Yeah, okay. and and both she and her husband worked for the the Edwards. The, 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 the Marchioness's maiden name was Edwards. She was the daughter of Sir John Edwards, a local landowner in Mid Wales, and so the mother and father, um, Edward and, and Anne, were employed throughout their life for the same family, the Edwardses, who then became the Londonderies, if like, through the marriage of their daughter into the Londonry family. So there's no doubt about that. The only doubt I have is whether or not Elizabeth was definitely employed in the same role. Uh, I think she was. And Anne went to some lengths to get her other daughters employed in similarly grand households. Um, Hannah, the elder sister of uh, Elizabeth, was employed by the uh, the Earl of Dalhousie just down the road in Carlton House, um, and one of the other daughters was was employed by a wealthy merchant in Liverpool. So they were they were all working in pretty prestigious houses, which sort of adds to my uh, suspicion that, that that Elizabeth was working for the same family. But anyway, she was certainly in London. We know that. All right. So this would have been in Fitzrovia, uh, around eight, eighty. One, right when yeah. when she would have, and she so she would have been the lady's maid to Mary Cornelia. Yeah, that's right. And then she, what happened then was in 1884, Mary Cornelia and her husband, the the, Mar- the Marquis of Londonderry, went down to their house in Wales, which was just a few miles from where Elizabeth had been born, near near the town of Machynlleth, and. Um, they went down there, and the old Marquis died once they were down there. That was in the autumn of 1884. And Mary Cornelia then said that she was never going to go back to London again. And as far as I know, she, she never did go back to London again. And I could imagine that that would have been a pretty much of a shock for Elizabeth, who was uh, still in her 20s and obviously enjoyed the bright lights of London. And she was faced with either staying in mid-Wales, a few miles from her family home, um, or quitting the service of Lady Londonry, going back to London. Uh, and it, it appears that that's what she did. A few months later, she was married to, married to Craig. Uh, it's my belief, but again, I've got no absolute evidence for this, that it, this was when she took to a life of prostitution and possibly worked for the... Um, in, in the, the French gay house that everybody um, is aware of from the story of Mary Kelly. So, Robert McLaughlin, why don't you go through what we know of what Mary Kelly had told to some of her acquaintances in the East End of London about her past? Okay, so most of what we know about uh, the life of uh, uh, Mary Kelly comes from uh, Joseph Barnett who she lived with prior to her death. And now we covered Mary Kelly extensively in previous podcasts, and I encourage the listeners to go back and to, li- to listen to those uh, because uh, we covered it much more extensively than we will here, and there's lots of information. Um, I'll introduce a few um, new points since then uh, that Neil Sheldon brought up in his research in his book, Mary Jane Kelly and the Victims of Jack the Ripper. Um, I don't know if the book is uh, available anymore. I don't know if it's in print. But uh, the information, at least, some of the new information that came out of that book should be on the forums, uh, and I'll mention it when we get to it. So like I said, most of the information comes from Barnett, and it's we get other information from people like Mrs. Carthy, uh, Mrs. Phoenix, and Mrs. Buki, and a few other people that knew her in her life. So this is basically where you know her biography comes from. 
the alleged history of Mary Kelly. She was born in Limerick. Um, we're not sure if it's the town or the county in Ireland. And her father, John Kelly, moved the family to the ironworks in uh, Wales when the family, when she was quite young. Um, she had some brothers and uh, six or seven brothers and one sister. Uh, we don't know where she fell in the birth order. And uh, one of her brothers we know was named Henry. And he was also known as John Toe. And he was in the 2nd Battalion Scots Guards. By 1879, uh, when Mary Kelly was about 16 years old, she marries a, a collier named Davis or Davies. And uh, he dies in a pit explosion a couple of years later, around 1882. Um, after this, uh, Mary Kelly moves to, in with a female cousin in Cardiff. And this female cousin is alleged to have introduced her into prostitution lifestyle. Kelly also became ill while she was in Cardiff uh, for an undisclosed ailment, and she had to spend a little bit of time in the infirmary, like eight or nine months. Afterwards is uh, when she came to London, which would have been around 1884. Uh, she arrives in a, a West End uh, brothel. She seems to be going around in carriages and being escorted by gentlemen. She even took a f- trip to France, um, said she didn't like it. They returned after a fortnight. For whatever reason, she ends up in the East End uh, roughly around 1885 at uh, Mrs. Buki's house. Uh, Mrs. Buki lived in Burgess Road, the old uh, Ratcliffe Highway area. Mrs. Buki has been proved uh, difficult to find in previous senses uh, due to her name. It's mostly phonetically spoken, but she was Dutch, and because of the spelling of the name, proved problematic to find until recently, where Neil Sheldon uh, found her in the census. And she was also living, quite interestingly, uh, with a man named uh, Morgenstern. There are several Morgenstern brothers, and she was living with uh, one called Adrianus Morgenstern. At this time, Mary Kelly asked Mrs. Buki to accompany her back to Knightsbridge because a French madam was holding some clothing for some dresses and such. And Mrs. Buki went with Kelly to retrieve those items. Presumably they have a falling out of some kind or Mary Kelly moves on. But anyway, sometime in 85, perhaps 86, uh, she finds herself at Mrs. Carthy's in uh, Breezer's Hill. Um, also in Breezer's Hill is uh, Elizabeth Phoenix. And uh, Elizabeth Phoenix... Uh, was just once again recently found by Neil Sheldon's wife, Jenny Sheldon, in the census records as being one Elizabeth Felix. Just probably through transcription error or mishearing it, the reporter wrote Phoenix instead of Felix. And her husband was um, uh, Adrianus Morgenstern, Morgenstern brother who lived with Mrs. Buki. And there was also a third Morgenstern brother named Marin, who was supposedly living near the Stepney Gas Works. And perhaps this is the Morgenstern that Mary Kelly was living with. Joe Barnett calls him Morgan Stone. Nobody, of course, ever found a Morgan Stone, but Morgan Stern seems like the likely connection. And like I said, I encourage people to look at Neil Sheldon's work, and and I, I think he, he proves it quite conclusively. Um, about 1886, so after her relationship with one of the Morgan Stearns, whoever it is, she encounters Joe Fleming. Now, Joe Fleming was a plaster who lived uh, near Bethnal Green. She lived with him for a while. Uh, it didn't work out. Uh, she found herself eventually living in a lodging house in Commercial Street, and that's where she met uh, Joe Barnett in 1887. She met him on uh, Good Friday uh, in April of 1887, and the day after they met in the pub, 
they decided to move in together. They stayed basically around the Spitalfields area, moving into several lodgings, leaving several lodgings, owing rent. Now they come to John McCarthy's in Dorset Street, uh, Miller's Court, uh, in the beginning part of 1888, and they pay four shillings, six pence for their room per week, uh, which, believe it or not, is not a bad rate. Um, if, if they'd rented a double bed in a lodging house, it would have cost them four and eight. And um, they seem to be quite comfortable there for uh, right up until uh, Mary's death. Um, sometime in the summer, though, Joe Bennett, who was working as uh, a porter at the Billingsgate Fish Market, lost his license, or lost his job, pardon me. And um, since he lost his job, uh, he had to rely on casual, temporary work. And there was less money coming into the house, which uh, forced Mary back on the streets. Because of that, their lifestyle sort of changed. They became, uh, they got behind on the rent. Uh, by the time of her death, uh, she owed 29 shillings back rent uh, to John McCarthy. By about October, uh, the marriage with, uh, the relationship, pardon me, with uh, Joe Burnett started breaking down. Mary Kelly was allowing other prostitutes to sleep in the room, perhaps to use the room. But anyway, he didn't like her being out on the streets, and they had rows about it. The window was broken somewhere around October 30th. And at this time, he moves out after that big fight. And he takes some lodgings in uh, New Street at Cooney's Lodging House in Bishopsgate. And uh, he remained there until her death and subsequently moved in with her sister after that but still come by every day he'd give her money uh when he had it but he still he said they parted on friendly terms even after the big fight that that he would come by he would give her money and uh on the on the last night of her life on november 8th he stopped in to see her um he said there was another woman there it could have been maria harvey it could have been lizzie albrook both of them seem to have been there um uh, roughly around the same time that uh that Barnett was there, but that's neither here nor there. Um, by by eight o'clock, though, they're all gone. They all left, and um, Mary Kelly is potentially seen drinking in a pub. But by eleven uh, forty-five, uh, she's re- returning home uh, to Miller's Court, and she has a gentleman with her. And Marianne Cox, who lives in the court, um, saw her with this gentleman. Uh, he had a blotchy face, carroty mustache, a Billy Cock hat. Um, he was about five foot five, uh, and he was carrying a quart pail of beer. Uh, Mary seemed to be quite intoxicated. Uh, she bid Marianne Cox a good night and said she was going to have a little song, and she commenced singing a uh, violet uh, she plucked from Mother's Grave. And um, Mary Cox went out. Uh, when she came back again at about one in the morning, there was still some singing. Uh, she left again. Um, Elizabeth Prater comes home at about one thirty. There's no singing in the court. Uh, there's no light on in Mary's. Um, she goes upstairs and goes to sleep. So um, about 1.30 or so, it, it seems like all is quiet in the court. At 2 o'clock, George Hutchinson uh, sees Mary Kelly in Commercial Street uh, near the Queen's Head uh, Tavern. And uh, she asks him for money. He says he doesn't have any. She said she's got to go find a client. Um, a few minutes, a few moments later, she spots a man. A uh, very elaborately dressed man. He's very nicely decked out. He had astrakhan collar and cuffs on his his coat. He had a lot of wealth. He was Jewish in appearance. And if you want a fuller description, just go online and, and read what Hutchinson had to say. But Hutchinson followed the couple uh, back to Miller's court. And eventually they went inside. Uh, he 
stood across the road uh, at Crossingham's lodging house. And he waited for about 45 minutes for the couple to emerge or another one to emerge, but uh, um, neither did. So at about 3 a.m., he leaves and he goes home. About 4 o'clock in the morning in the court, Elizabeth Prater is awakened by her cat. And uh, she hears the cry of, oh, murder, faint cry. She doesn't know quite where it's coming from. Sarah Lewis, around this same time, also claims to have hear, heard the sound. It may be connected to Kelly, maybe not. It's one of those things. Uh, but neither one investigate, no one just take any other notice of it. And all was quite seemingly quiet in the court until morning. Uh, around uh, 10.45, John McCarthy, the landlord of Miller's Court, sends his employee, John Bowyer, to uh, fetch the rent for Mary Kelly. She's 29 shillings uh, in arrears and uh, try to get some money out of her Friday's rent day. Uh, it was also Lord Mayor's parade. Um, he knocked on the door. There was no answer. He went around the side. He uh, pulled back the curtain uh, because he could poke his hand through the broken window pane. He pulled back a, a coat that was being used as a curtain. And he, you know, saw the you know, completely destroyed body of, of Mary Kelly. I mean, all of us have seen that photograph. And then that's actually the angle that uh, that Thomas Bowyer would have seen, the, the famous photograph on the bed that, that we've all seen. And um, he went and fetched John McCarthy, and uh, they went to Commercial Street Police Station, and Inspector Beck came back with a whole lot of policemen, and the investigation commenced. And um, that's basically where I'll leave it because we do, we're not here to talk about you know the post investigation and like I said people can go back to the podcasts too right well, it's uh, um, interesting to that. note that none of Mary Jane Kelly's family ever came forward at the inquest to any reporters or attended her funeral no none of them did and um, it's it's quite interesting too because um, uh, the story that uh, Kelly relayed to uh, Joe Barnett, uh, Mrs. Carthy, Mrs. Buki, all of them, when their stories first came out in the initial days, um, gave a fair amount of detail. And you would think that um, uh, a family could piece it together, or even very close friends um, could piece that together, even if it wasn't her real name. Because there was, frankly, quite a bit of information in the story. Barnett gives us quite a bit. Uh, and very specific information, like uh, you know, brother Henry named John, to, uh, known as John Toe, who was in the Second Battalion Scots Guards. I mean, very specific. You know, her time spent in the West End, very specific. Um, living in Breezers Hill, like you know, um, and all of this with Mrs. Buki coming forward, Mrs. Phoenix, who's now been identified as Mrs. Felix, Mrs. Carthy, um, all on Breezers Hill. But but another interesting thing too is by 1888, um, all these people that knew. Uh, Mary Kelly on Breezers Hill. Um, they had left Breezers Hill, uh, the Breezers Hill area. So reporters going to search there would not have found even around that area too many people. Uh, there was, frankly, um, according to Neil Sheldon, no one left. Um, the people that, that came forward with, with information were actually people that came forward, like like I said, Mrs. Pookie, Mrs. Felix, Mrs. Carthy, actually volunteering information. But when they went to seek out people in Breezer's Hill, all the people that actually lived there in 1888 uh, uh, were different than the ones who had lived there in 1885, 1886, um, the time that you know Mary Kelly would have been there. Which, Robert, like I said, um, makes it more problematic to you know find for researchers. Robert, can I ask a question at this this stage? Um, Absolutely. The, 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 the very detailed account that you've given, uh, which, as you say, was 
um, largely given by uh, Joe um, Barmet and, and by the, uh, the Breeders Hill crowd, um, I think I'm right in saying that actually not a single piece of that has ever been corroborated through uh, independent evidence. I mean, the, the, the search for Henry in the Scots Guards, for instance, I mean, that's, that has never led, led anywhere. Um, None of it. Um, no, there's been and um, no marriage uh, to a man named Davies. Uh, yeah. um, so, so, no, so that, yeah. that sort of that sort of suggests that that it, that, that it, you know that if she was making some of it up, she she may have been making all of it up. Uh, it, it's, it's absolutely possible. Um, I, but I think the fact is, I, I think you hit on a key point, though, in that is that um, she was making it up. Because um, I, I don't believe that Joe Barnett would have made this up, especially since some people came forward to actually corroborate what he said independently. And it would oh, yeah, have been no, one hell of a for him to come up yeah, within a few I, hours. I, so I think I you hit on I, a very good point. I absolutely, I absolutely agree. Uh, I think Joe Barnett was... Uh, a, I think he was very uh, fond of her, and I think he was a very on- honest man. I think I think everything he said, he sincerely believed, and it was what it, what she had told him. Yeah, I believe so. And um, but but no, before um, about 1885, we can't really trace any of her movements, um, which is why I think Neil Sheldon tried to move backwards in, in time and try to trace her a bit that way, instead of trying to. Uh, find her in um, either Ireland or in Wales, yeah. um, because that has proved fruitless to many researchers. Yeah. So I think just moving back in time, trying to piece together maybe some of the people that knew her and maybe try to find her that way. Yeah. And, it, and it's uh, amongst an, a, a couple other things when it's the period of time between Elizabeth Davies, your great aunt, leaving the Marchioness of Londonderry in Fitzrovia and arriving at Mrs. Buki's place in Breezer's Hill in late 1885, it's, it's, that, it's that period of time living in a brothel in the West End of the French Madame that you believe has connected. And, and also the, uh, there's a Jonto connection there as well, but, but let's talk about the West End brothel that seems to be yeah. the, the linchpin in connecting cool. Elizabeth Davies with Mary Jane Kelly. Yeah, um... The, the, the name of the, the madam for whom Elizabeth Davies worked uh, is given in, in um, Francis Craig's divorce petition as Mrs. MacLeod. And I spent a long time looking for every, every possible Mrs. MacLeod living in London at the time and uh, uh, tracing them and finding out as much as I could about any of them. Strangely enough, almost the first one I came across was was Ellen McLeod, and in one of the censuses, her um, occupation is given as wife of a, of a paymaster, Royal Navy. And I, I, reje- I rejected her initially. I thought, almost as, as soon as I saw that, I thought, no, it can't be her. You know, she's far too respectable. Uh, if her, if her, if her um, husband is a, a, a petty officer or, or an officer in the Royal Navy, that's not likely to be the one. And I, so I spent a lot of time looking at all the other ones and couldn't find anything that connected them with brothel keeping. So I went back to look at the at Ellen McLeod, and that's when I discovered that she was actually born uh, as Elaine Maundrell, and she was born in France, and she regarded herself as, as, as more French than English. She'd been brought up in France to speak French, 
and um, all her family were heavily sort of involved in France. And indeed, there are Maundrels still living in the Normandy and Brittany area. Um, uh, so it's, it's a family that's got deep roots and connections with France. Her, her, her daughter, um, her only daughter, went, went on the stage um, and specialised in French parts, French-speaking parts. So um, that, was, that was something that interested me straight, straight away, the, the French connection. And then I started to research the family and found that they were a very, very bohemian family. They lived um, uh, alongside another family. They, they shared that, their house with another family called the Gilders. And the Gilders came from a couple of miles from where Elizabeth was born. And um, they lived first in France and then in London with the Gilders, and they had all sorts of um, very bohemian friends. Ellen MacLeod let her house out, interestingly, to Walter Sickert many years later, which, which sort of brings in a bit of a Sickert connection. Um, she lived next door but one to George Robert Sims, the famous playwright who also is involved in the, in the Ripper story and so on. Uh, and they were all friends of William Morris. The whole lot of them were in the William Morris set. Uh, so that began to get me interested in, 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 in Ellen MacLeod in a big way. And um, if you accept what Francis says in his uh, petition, she appears to have run quite a, a large chain of brothels. And so I, uh, I think that she may have been the French madam who ran the French uh, gay house in, the, in, in Knightsbridge. And I, in the book, I have suggested that it might be 28 Collingham Place, which was certainly uh, rented by the Maundrell sisters, uh, or the MacLeod and Maundrell uh, sisters, in the 18... They're, they're there in the 1891 census. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how how long they were there, but it, uh, you know, I postulate in the book that this might have been the French brothel uh, that that um, that Mary Kelly talked about. If not that building, maybe another building in the in the in the area. But that's certainly in the right in the right part of the, part of London. It's a, it's it's actually in what today is called South Kensington, but it's on the sort of it's very it's very near to Knightsbridge. And in fact, if you if you read. Uh, Joe Barnett's account, he never says in Knightsbridge, and, and I don't think either anybody else does. They say near Knightsbridge, so it would fit. Uh, subsequent to the four chapters of your book being made public on uh, free preview sites and the such, it's been researched that the Mondrells resided at 23 Edwards Square in Kensington, Yep. prior to moving to 28 Collingham Place, and they seemingly were up, were at 23 Edwards Square up until 1890, uh, as, they are in, as they appear there in the electoral registers. Okay, I, 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 I picked that up earlier on today. I, I didn't know that before, and um, it... it uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's again, it's in the same same part of London, right? Um, in the Kensington Stroke Knightsbridge part of London, mm -hmm. so it, it may not be Collingham. Collingham Place may not be uh, may not be relevant. It may be Edward Square or, or indeed any anywhere else. Clearly, the Maundrell sisters owned a lot of property. They they owned or rented a lot of property, but they still had property up in the Camden area at this stage. 
they were very entrepreneurial uh, and um, whether they were running brothels or just you know just accumulating property they they certainly seem to have occupied a large number of houses in the in, in the years around that time in uh, the 23 Edwards Square was operated as some as a kindergarten school which I think you speculate that 28 Collingham Place may have been masquerading as a school of some sort um, at the time. Now, whether it was 23 Edwards Square or 28 Collingham Place, it seems yeah, that I, 23 Edwards Square was a kindergarten school since they advertised as such. Okay, well, as I say, I only, I only discovered that today, and I haven't had a chance to actually look at, look at that, and I totally okay. accept, uh, accept what you're saying. Uh, and indeed, 28 Collingham Place may have been a perfectly legitimate school as well. Um, uh, I'm just positing that it's, you know, it possibly it wasn't. If you look at the census for 1891, um, there are, I think, about, um, I've forgotten exactly how many, about 16 people living in the house, and they're all women apart from a, apart from a five-year-old boy. Um, and some of them are put down as teachers, and some of them are, are pupils and so on, but they're all women in their sort of 20s and early 30s, that sort of age. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it may mean nothing at all. Um, it doesn't stop her running a completely different French brothel around the corner. Let's backtrack just briefly. I want to talk about the Park Street address, which uh, I believe this is at the time when she would have still been in, in the employ of the Marquis of Londonderry. It should be noted that there is an Elizabeth Davies that appears in the 1881 census yeah. on Park Lane. Direct. I think you might have actually mentioned this already behind the par- uh, yeah. on Park Lane behind that address, in which um, there was a gas explosion that occurred and. There's, there was a newspaper report of a gas explosion at number 62 Park Lane in which the servants, some of the servants were injured, but apparently not too severely. And it was um, and this gas explosion was being litigated in the courts up and through uh, through 1887, three years, three years later, and doesn't seem to have been ever been resolved. So I just wanted to point out to our listeners that Elizabeth Davies could have uh, been involved in a gas explosion when she was associated with this vain tempest address. And also, I believe it's been discovered just tangentially that um, vain tempest, who is the marquee of uh, that, that we're referring to might have had a brother who was involved in the Scots Guards in some fashion. Is am I getting that right, Paul? Do you recall this? So, so there could be tangential or at least a, a story origin to, a, you know, using the story of a gas explosion, connect and also connecting it, uh, and, and also a reference to maybe where she have picked up this royal guard story. I want to get Paul Begg in here. He's been sitting quietly. Quietly eating strawberries, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, that's right. Uh, the, the only thing about the, the Scots Guards story that intrigues me is that if memory serves correctly, uh, Joseph Barnett said that he thought they were serving in Ireland at that time, and indeed I believe that they were. And that 
has always struck me as a very precise piece of information for Barnett to have known. Uh, one assumes that he didn't have a an overriding interest in troop movements and therefore knew where everything was. So to have known that would suggest that that was a piece of information that he either got directly from Mary Kelly or had in some way picked up from the newspapers uh, uh, because it had some significance to him because Mary had said that the 2nd Battalion was where her brother was. Uh, there's also a story that her brother came and saw her, so that's perhaps... And I'm not sure whether that visit was during the time that she was with uh, Barnet, but uh, it suggests that possibly the Scots Guards element in her life story was um, was real. So, yeah, I mean, she could have picked it up uh, as a result of some loose connection uh, with somebody else, but that precise piece of knowledge about where they had been, because uh, they'd only just recently been transferred there, I think. So that's a, uh, just a an interesting little side issue about how real uh, that aspect of the Scots Guard story may be. Uh, and if, if that was real, then, of course, <laughs> that the reverse of the argument is true, that if that's true, then much else of her story may well be true. The, the thing that um, interests me about this is that uh, if she had a... First of all, she's... By her own account, she's supposed to be Irish, and she's supposed to have a brother called Henry. Uh, it's not very clear to me, and I've got quite a lot of army connections, why uh, why an Irishman called you know Henry Kelly would have gone into the Scots Guards. There are plenty of Irish regiments he could have gone into. Um, and secondly, it, even if he did, why would his why would his comrades have given him the nickname Jonto? It, it doesn't sort of make any. There's no connection with Henry. Whereas the, the 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 nickname could be quite easily explained by the fact that we don't know for certain uh, how old these other members of the uh, the family were. So we, Mary, we know uh, if the, her story is true that they went from Ireland to Wales when she was of a very young age. I mean that could be anything uh, from a babe in arms through to uh, three, four, five years of age. Uh, her brothers equally might have been not that much older and having lived in Wales until they signed up um, they might well have Welsh accents even, so, and, and, even uh, so, why would, they, why would they have gone into the Scots Guards though? Well, that's a peculiar thing uh, when you see people going into the military, they always seem to manage to go into, in, into odd things. I found somebody from Yorkshire going into the Coldstream Guards not so long ago, so... Uh, oh, no, the, the Coldstream Guards recruit, recruit in, in Durham and Northumberland, so well, that's not... Well, indeed they do. I mean, I, I don't but, know where uh, recruit Just to get, back, to, get, to get back to the Jonto uh, connection, Elizabeth's younger brother, my grandfather, was unquestionably known as Jonto to his family. And um, he certainly, his story is, you know, is, is quite a an odd one. Yes, I. Jonto Jonto came to London in the early 1880s and was um, 
apprentice to Maples, the big furniture uh, makers in Tottenham Court Road. And he became a master cabinet maker for Maples at, an, at a very early age. He was 24 when he got his master's uh, certificate. And he's, uh, I discovered in the course of research that he's, he's well known to the Victoria and Albert Museum as being a, a, you know, a notable cabinet maker for Maples. And he then, quite soon after the whole affair, in, in about 1891, he himself got married, and very soon after that, he, he took to the bottle, and he, he left Maples, and the, the V&A have got a note that says that he left of his own, of his own accord. And when I spoke to them, they, they, you know, they said they're, they're, they're very puzzled why this notable young cabinet maker suddenly, suddenly disappears. And he took the bottle, and he went downhill and downhill and downhill. And by the sort of end of his days, he was just described as a carpenter. And he'd had multiple jobs, been out to Australia, come back, and eventually in 1931 he killed himself. And um, But obviously before he killed himself, he must have told my father about the member of the family that was a prostitute. I don't know what more he said, I've got no idea, and I can't ask my father anymore. Um, but certainly something happened in Jonto's life, in my in my Jonto's life, that around about the 1888-90 period, that put his life on a complete downward, downward spiral. Mm. Do you think that that would really, if, if his sister uh, was Mary Kelly, do you... I appreciate that he may have well, felt. They, uh, they, they, they lived reversed. very close yeah. when they were in London. When 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 Elizabeth was married to Craig, and living in Argyle Square in St Pancras, her brother Jonto was living about three hundred yards away, just round the corner in Lee Street. So mm. they almost certainly, you know, were in were in contact at that stage. If she kept in touch with him after she left Craig and went to the East End. Um, then it might account for the story of somebody called Jonto coming to visit her there. That's right. Then, then she goes un- even deeper underground. When she leaves Bree- Breezes Hill, she goes even deeper underground. Uh, and don't forget, there's the story of an older man looking for her, which Joe Barnett believed to be her father. Could have been Craig because Craig was twenty years twenty years older than she was. Mm. Um, and if she then went deeper underground and lost contact with Jonto, and then maybe after the whole thing was over, he may have put two and two together. You know, he, at that stage, it may have—he may not have been certain it was her, but it may have preyed on his mind to the extent that that he started drinking. Yeah, just a just a hunch, just a theory. So the the one thing that uh, that, that I felt uh, a bit critical of the book over was the lack of sourcing, uh, and that I found rather obviously it's a bit frustrating for further researchers to to uh, check out the, the the story. Was this your decision, or was that something that was? forced upon you as it were when when you say the lack of sourcing i mean there 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 are a lot of notes which i you know in the, in the back yeah uh, and I, uh, which i refer to i mean i i it, i'm beginning I to think, for example you said earlier on that um that you hadn't 
really got any evidence apart from supposition that uh, Elizabeth worked for the, uh, what was lady's maid to the Marchioness. Uh, so I therefore assume that your suggestion that she departed uh, the Marchioness's employment uh, at the time of the, the Marcus's death, that, that, that's supposition too. Yes, it, uh, it is. I mean, it, all I can say there is that, you know, the, from the point of view of timing, it, fit, it fits. Absolutely. Um, I, 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 have got, I have got evidence that her mother worked for the Marchioness of Londonry, yeah. um, which I probably haven't, I may not have put into the book. It's very, it's very, it's very complex, and, I was, and you know, right. I'm not sure that it would have added anything to the, to the story, but, but certainly her mother worked for the Marchioness of Londonry. It doesn't, it doesn't materially alter the, anything if, if Elizabeth didn't, but it does, it no. does fit quite well. It was just, I, I mean, from my point of view on reading the book, um, it's one of the difficult things, I think, when you're doing a book is, is to target your readership. Uh, and obviously this book isn't being written for ripperologists who are going to take it apart afterwards and analyse every, uh, everything that you say in it. And, and so therefore putting in lots of sources to things that aren't... This way, I'm, 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 I'm very prepared to put absolutely every bit of evidence I've got on the table and any, for anybody to trawl through yeah, um, no, at any time. But I mean, there, there are, you know, there's a limit to what you can. There's a limit to what you can put in the book aimed at yeah. a general, a general readership. Well, that's what I was saying. Uh, yes, exactly. I mean, you're not writing for for ripperologists, so uh, you know we 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 can be a little bit more critical of of the absence of sources than the, the than the general reader is going to be. But and as you say, that doesn't particularly make uh, make any difference. It was just one of those things that it was a key point in the book, um, and it really required some sort of substantiation. And 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 I was felt a little frustrated that uh, I, 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 I accept I accept your criticism and I'll do my best to rectify it perhaps on a personal <laughs> level in the future but uh, but that that was the, uh, the the one aspect it does make it a very tight um, very very tight timing because uh, it only gives her about two months to have got to London gone into prostitution worked for the Mondrells met Craig been wooed by him, which was interesting in itself. And um... well, you know, it, I mean, she may have, she may, of course, have worked for the Maundrells for much longer than that. Because um, again, I've done a lot of research into Victorian servants and so on. Mm. And, um, uh, many, many Victorian women servants, particularly in the in the in the sort of um, Mayfair area. Um, moonlighted as prostitutes. This was this oh, right. was quite was quite well known, um, and um, that they you know on their, on their nights off or whatever they, they would they would uh, and, and particularly with soldiers from the from the local barracks from Knightsbridge and and, and Wellington barracks and so on. Um, and and um, I'm trying to remember the word now. There's an actual word which which was given to to, to servant girls who um, were were amateur prostitutes. Mm. Uh, so she could have been working. For them. She could have been working for them, uh, you know, for even longer. Hmm. 
What what's the connection between the Modrells and William Morris that would eventually bring, in your opinion, Elizabeth Weston Davies into contact with Francis Craig? Well, um, William Morris um, had a big circle of um, of friends, um, artists, writers, political people, and so on. And, you know, there's a catalogue of well-known names like um, George Bernard Shaw, Oscar Wilde, uh, many, many people. Walter Sickert and his family, George Robert Sims and his family, they were all friends of, of William Morris. They were all on the sort of left wing of, you know, left uh, fringes of politics and artistic and, as I say, writers, musicians, um, Gustav Holst, all sorts of people like that. And um, I, although I, I can't, there's no, I haven't found anything that puts the Mondrels absolutely into that, into the Morris set. Certainly lots of the Mondrels' friends were in the Morris set. Um, so, for instance, um, George Robert Sims, who lived next door but one to them, was in the Morris set. Walter Sickert, who rented one of their houses, was in the Morris set. So it seems likely that the Mondrels if they weren't themselves in the Morris set, at least knew lots of people that, that, that were. Francis, his father, certainly was in the Morris set. Um, so, you know, that, that, that could have been a way, that could have been, Elizabeth might have been, might have been part of that herself. I believe that she, uh, and this is now going off into the realms of sort of um, Patricia Cornwall territory, but uh, I believe that she may have, Modelled for, um, for for Walter Sickert. Um, this isn't this isn't in the book, but there's the stories that link Sickert with the uh, with, with the um, uh, Prince Eddie story and all of that, and um, uh, have him at one stage looking after a young a young child in his studio. Um, which was somewhere near Cleveland Street. And indeed, he had a studio in um, Robert Street, which was a couple of hundred yards from the brothel in um, Drummond Street that Elizabeth worked in after she left, after she left Craig. It's possible that, um, you know, that she, if Sickert was looking after a child there, that Elizabeth might have been the, the babysitter. I don't know. That's that's yeah. That's just speculation, but certainly she she was just around the corner from Sickert Studios, um, uh, and and I have I don't have evidence, but I I I, I think that she may have um, modelled for Sickert. There are so many so many allusions in Sickert's pa- paintings to the as you as you know to the Ripper uh, murders. Um, my Uncle on my mother's side knew Sickert very well, and Sickert uh, constantly talked about the the Ripper murders, but without saying anything. He'd say, you know, I could, oh, I could tell you a lot about that if I, you know, and, and he he was always hinting that he knew much more than he was prepared to say. I don't think that he knew who Jack the Ripper was for one moment, but I do think that he suspected that that Mary Jane Kelly might have been this young prostitute that occasionally modelled for him. 
And would she, uh, Elizabeth Davies, have attended these soirees at William Morris's house at, as a prostitute or just be, as, as a lover of the arts? Or, I mean, what, because it kind of goes into what, yeah, what relationship um, would, her, would I, she have had with the the McLeod? I don't think I, I don't think she would have attended it as a prostitute. If if she attended any of the soirees at Morris's house, I think it would have been as a lover of Bohemian society. And you know, and, she may and have. The Madrells would have allowed one of their. Um, well, she, she, at that stage, she may or may not have been working for them. Um, you know, I, I think it wasn't a. The time that I think that she might have worked for them was the time after after the Marquess of Londonderry died and before she married Craig, which is, as you rightly say, it's only a very brief period, about three or four weeks. Um, but I think she knew the Mondrels before that, and I think she knew a lot of the Mondrels' friends, like Walter Sickert. So whether or not she herself ever went to William Morris's soirees, I, I, I don't know. But that's but I think there was speculation. Um, it is is it is at William Morris's soirees where you speculate that she first encountered Francis Craig. Yes, uh, I think if you know if if she'd been if she'd been going to those soirees, then I think that's where she'd have encountered Craig because he certainly went to them. He went to them in what capacity? Just as an escort to his for his father? It seems like you you can place his father there uh, apparently, but you indicate that that maybe Francis Craig was just just accompanied his father there because his father was ver- very elderly. Just accompanied him on his walk, um, on the one hand. But then you also kind of paint the impression that. Francis did not get along with his father. They didn't want to even acknowledge each other's existence. So I'm trying well, to wonder how yeah, they, you reconcile uh, the two. It, 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 uh, yeah, I think we need to say a bit more about Francis's character. Mm. Um, you know, he, he may not he may not have gone on with his father, but they they lived together for almost you know all their lives. Um, there were only very brief periods when Francis wasn't living at home. Right. Um, Francis was uh, uh, definitely had a strange personality. I've tried to, in the book, I've tried to say that it was something called schizotypal personality disorder. Um, he was, he found it very, very difficult to live independently. He had constant problems with money. After his parents died, he, he moved into a lodging house around the corner from where they'd lived in Hammersmith, and he used to give sums of money to his employer, his, his the, the chap that owned the newspaper that he was the editor of, and also to his friend, a, a rate collector in Fulham. He used to give them sums of money to hand back to him in small weekly amounts, like pocket money. I mean, he, he, you know, in other words, he, he, he didn't seem to be able to manage his own money at all. He, he had to rely on other people to, to hand it out to him in small, manageable amounts. Um, and he's documented as being almost incapable of having a conversation with anybody. He, he, as soon as people started to talk to him, he would, he would uh, run out into the street sometimes. He'd break off conversations and run away. 
But you, and, you, you uh, were they, able to have a career as as a. And this is this is what I find that he worked as a this journalist. Is, this is what I find quite extraordinary. He was an extremely literate journalist. I've read a lot of what he wrote in in later life. He was a most eloquent journalist. Wonderful way with words, although slightly eccentric. I mean, he wrote some very funny things, some very odd things, as well as uh, as well as a lot of very eloquent things. But you know, the people that knew him said he was very, very awkward in, 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 in face-to-face conversation. He just found it very difficult to relate to, to people verbally. Um, and this is typical of schizotypal personality disorder. So, so... Oh. Yeah, sorry, no, sorry, I say, um, when you said about, about the William Morris soirees, um, I, I'm just trying to think back. I think, I think, um, I'm not 100% certain, I'll have to look back into my notes... I think I found at least one reference to Francis and his father being at one of these soirees. Somebody, somebody referred to the Craig father and the son, or something like that. Oh. But I'm assuming that he would have he would have taken his, his his father was you know in his 70s and 80s at this stage, and and had had a stroke, so probably didn't uh, walk all that well. And they lived about a mile away from Morris's house in Hammersmith. So I'm assuming that Francis would have gone with his father on, on these Sunday night soirees. Uh, and as I say, I think I've got at least one reference that mentions them being being there together. Okay. Sorry, I was, I was just going to um, say a quick thing there, that um, if she had been a model, then uh, that would have given a sort of entry into the uh, soiree area because the yep. models were treated a little bit more... Um, if you were a model for a famous artist, I know that yes. in the case of Betty May, she 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 was always um, uh, fated because she was uh, a model for famous artists, and of course they're yes, I, I, I think, I think that's right. Yes, um, and, and uh, uh, there are references to to Mary Jane Kelly. Um, I think it was. Um, Mrs. Carthy said, said that she was she was an artist of no mean degree or something like that. That's and right. um, uh, interestingly, Walter Sickert was particularly fond. He was noted uh, as being very fond of teaching women to draw and paint. He he had art, you know, he ran art classes, but almost exclusively for women, and. Um, and uh, I, I, you know, it, 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 I just wonder whether or not you know she she picked up a pencil and paper, and 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 he taught her something. I don't know, but uh, she came from an artistic family. Um, her, my um, grandfather's eldest son, after whom I'm named, um, also called Wynne, became a very noted Australian artist later in life, and he settled in Australia. Um, and there are other members of the family that have been semi-professional or very talented artists. I just wanted to jump in a bit with um, Elizabeth's age. Uh, yeah. Joe Barnett cites Mary Kelly as being about 25 years of age, and um, Mrs. Phoenix slash Felix says that when she first met um, Mary Jane Kelly, that she would have been 22 at the time and subsequently 25 at the time of death. Um, Elizabeth was what thirty-two, if if I'm correct. Yeah, um, correct. Yeah, I just wanted to know what what you have to say about on that. Yeah, I mean, if you if you said to me, 
what is the what is the one thing that is against your theory? I'd have to say it is the age thing, because Elizabeth was certainly 32 at the time of Mary Kelly's death, and as you say, uh, you know there are these references to her being younger. On the other hand, she certainly, like many women did in those days, she certainly deducted several years from her age in official documents, like the census and like a marriage certificate. Uh, and there are references to, I, I think in particular, her landlord, John McCarthy, saying that she looked about 30. Um, and in fact, I came across another reference, I was looking up something today, of a, another woman saying, who said, although she looked about 30, she was only 25, or something like that, words to that effect. Um, so there are a couple of people who apparently thought she was older than 25. Um, and, of course, um, in those days, without the benefit of X-rays and things like that, it would have been very difficult. Um, uh, Philip Sugden, in his book, points out the fact that almost all of the um, victims were... Uh, their ages were said by the police to be quite a, a lot less than they actually turned out to be in, 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 in reality. Which is quite but the reverse to what you'd expect, isn't it? You'd expect them to look older than they were. To be much older, yes, yeah. Well, you, you know, um, and I'm speaking now as a doctor and as a surgeon, um, when, when, when people are dead, they often look much younger than they do in life. Um, they, and partly that's to do with the muscles relaxing and that sort of thing. Uh, but but um, uh, I mean, if you look at the pictures of Elizabeth Stride, for instance, she looks much younger in that picture than she than she than her known ages. Mm. What if I may ask uh, another question? I know it's diverting from the subject. Uh, well, not subject, but immediate topic. What do you make of uh, Craig's boss's statement that the marriage? Uh, broke up as a consequence of Elizabeth's drinking. I think that's probably quite true. Um, I think she probably, uh, I think she probably did. Um, when the you know occasion presented itself, I think she probably probably did drink too much. And if they were in a, a stressful situation, and and rowing sort of so soon after their uh, after their marriage. I think she quite likely would have been hitting the bottle, and and, and that may have been a, a, a contributory factor. But mm. I mean, don't forget that she left him; he didn't leave her. No. So, so it, it may it may well have been drink. Drink may well have been a factor in it. Yeah. And she also, um, of the three addresses given at the uh, in the in the petition, divorce petition that they lived at, the first is the home, uh, the family home which you say they probably didn't stay at for very long, given the animosity that the parents had. Yeah, I mean, it was only a, two be a little two-bedroom cottage. Yeah. Um, and then they went and lived in uh, Lemon Street, which uh, or Lemon yeah. Terrace, which you paint delightfully as, uh, as a, <laughs> as a pretty dreadful area. And then she, in her letter from that hotel says that she went straight to that hotel from the East End, so she doesn't appear to have lived in the third address. Um, so most of their their married life would appear to have been spent in that pretty grim uh, lemon terrace with all the uh, factory 
noise and, and smoke yeah. and things. Uh, yeah, I, it, it could well have been. I mean, I, I, I would have, you know, my supposition is that it, it would not have been a place that she would want, want to have started her married life in. No. And she may have she may have lent on him very you know strongly to, to move back to you know more 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 central London. It is interesting that she says that she went straight from there to the Monmouth Hotel and Coffee House, which is the place in Drummond Street yeah. around the corner from uh, allegedly a, a second studio, or actually yeah. from his studio. Yes, um, that that she. Presumably, uh, she would have had to. Well, presumably, knew that that was a brothel when she she fled there. It wasn't something that came came as a surprise to her when she took her room. Yeah, I I, I imagine so. I, I should think probably the first thing that she did was to get back in touch with uh, Ellen McLeod and say, "Have you got a job for me?" Hmm. I wonder why she, if she did do that, I that she was uh, knocking around uh, those particular brothels, because they're all in fairly dismal areas. I mean, I think Drum... Was, is it Drummond Street? It's one Drummond of the streets, Street, yeah. anyway, is is named... Uh, somebody's written a book about it. Jerry White wrote a book about it, because it was the noted as the worst street in, in North London, much as uh, Dorset Street and things are supposed to have been the worst streets in the East End. They, they were fairly low market uh, establishments wouldn't you think that she would have been taken back into the higher class area or was she being punished for having uh, left I, yeah I, 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 it, I, I don't know it's a short answer but I, but I think that I think you could well be right I think I think uh, she I think she you know she'd been given the chance of a, of a really very high class post in the in the in the French gay house near Knightsbridge and she probably only stayed there for a very few weeks before getting married and you know and Ellen McLeod wasn't going to have her back in the top at the top end of the market and probably said all right well you can prove yourself a bit lower down the down the yeah. tree to start off with given a chance and she blew it basically <laughs> yeah yeah well, I think she was I think you know from I think Elizabeth certainly and from what I you know, one knows of Mary Jane Kelly. I think they were both girls that blew their chances very frequently. Mm. I mean, I mean, Elizabeth, you know, came from a middle-class Welsh family. She had, uh, you know, and had been given a very good start in life in terms of, you know, the sort of uh, household she went into service in. Uh, but she blew that. Uh, I think she constantly blew, you know, blew her chances. Which enables one to see why she would have been a great disappointment to her family. Indeed, yes. And they wouldn't, if, if she was Mary Kelly, then why they wouldn't have bothered, to, perhaps. Although. Well, maybe, I don't know. I mean, perhaps. Whether, whether, whether they would have come forward or not. But I mean, as I say, the, certainly, certainly in my, you know, in my lifetime, my father would not speak about that part of the family at mm. at all, um, and, and I, I don't think that he knew anything in detail. But I think I think that you know that there was some big dark part of the of the life of that family that that has come right down to the, to today. Of course, if if the um, if Elizabeth did work for uh, the Marchioness and uh, and so forth, there would have been 
or may well have been had they got wind of what had happened, considerable pressure placed upon the police not to reveal too much detail about uh, Mary Kelly's background because it would have connected up with the, the London Darius, which the, obviously the Marquis, uh, Marchioness wouldn't have wanted. Yes, I think that's, I think that's a fair comment. Makes that little, little bit of uh, a strangeness about none of the, the family coming to, to the funeral or at least having their presence there being reported. Uh, a little bit because yeah. uh, I, I, I always think that no matter what my daughter did no matter how cross I was with her um, how, whether I wrote her off or not I think I, one would relent somewhat if uh, if she ended her life in the way that Mary Kelly did You, I think you yeah, would you'd... inevitably go to the funeral I can't imagine staying away well you'd think so I mean you know I wonder I wonder, you know, if 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 I'm right, um, I wonder how much ever got back to her mother. Her, mo- her mother was a widow at this stage. Her father had died in 1875, and her mother remarried to the um, man who sort of ran the village shop um, in their in their village. And um, I, I don't know how much would have got back to her. Maybe maybe. Um, it would have got back that she'd left the Marchioness's employ, and that probably wouldn't have pleased her very much. Uh, and maybe she didn't. She never. She was never told anything more than that. Uh, I don't know. But even possibly, would her uh, brother, who you identified as John Toe, would he make a connection uh, with, with think, that name being published? Yeah, I think. I think. I have a feeling that John Toe did make a connection, um, but for one reason or other, chose not to pass it back to the rest of his family or maybe didn't, maybe didn't want to acknowledge it to himself what do you but of course the this brings us on to a, a question that I'm anticipating here and that's the, the question of DNA and whether or not um, it could be proved that that Mary Jane Kelly was in fact uh, a blood relative of mine and as you probably know from the publicity that there's been, um, I applied to the British Ministry of Justice about uh, 18 months ago for permission to exhume Mary Jane Kelly's body. And it, it took six months before I got a decision. And really, to my surprise, um, they, they have given provisional permission. Um, I say provisional, it's based on the, the, the provisos are that uh, notices are, placed, are posted on the grave to anybody else who may be buried or who may have relatives buried in the immediate vicinity that if they want you to come forward with any objections and secondly they want they want uh, some proof from a D, from a you know, certified DNA laboratory that they're prepared to undertake the DNA analysis um, and uh, this as I say uh, I got this permission about about a year ago, um, and I've been uh, well. I, I've been in discussions with a firm of forensic undertakers who are who were prepared to do it for actually for nothing, just for the publicity. But they, in turn, were in touch with the cemetery authorities, and there is some doubt, as in fact, as to whether or not she is actually buried where her headstone is. Right. That's uh, what I was going to ask. What What's their definition of close proximity? 
Well, I don't know. I, I don't know, uh, I, I, and I haven't. I haven't re-engaged with them. Uh, this this all happened about a year ago, and um, I mean, in fact, I, I wasn't engaged with them directly myself anyway. It was only through the through uh, one firm of forensic undertakers, and that was the message that came back to me from them. So I, I haven't taken it any further at this stage. Having said that, um, I've been contacted by, um, I better not, perhaps better not mention the name, but a big um, television company, in fact a US television company, who are prepared to take it up and, and um, to um, uh, underwrite the costs of an exhumation if it, if it becomes possible, and, and also to sort of re-engage with the cemetery authorities to see just how, you know, whether they know to within six feet or 600 yards. You know, it's, I've got no idea what they, you know, what they mean by proximity. Can I just ask you a, a quick question here regarding, like, exhumation? As someone who knows nothing about uh, English or British exhumation, um, now I know they're you had to apply for this legally, but I was wondering if uh, either St. Patrick's Cemetery or the Catholic Church has any say in whether um, the grave is exhumed or not. Well, um, there's an inter that's interesting, and I went into this a bit. Um, the, the, the short answer is they don't. Uh, if, a, if, a, if an exhumation order is, is granted, then this, the cemetery... Um, uh, and so on can't, can't over over override that, but interestingly, the Catholics are actually very much, uh, if anything, in favour of exhumations. They have a history, after all, of of, of saints and, and relics and things like that. So they're they're well used to the concept of exhumation in the Catholic Church. So my, I got all this from the forensic undertakers. They told me that it's much easier to exhume a Catholic body from a Catholic cemetery than it is from a Protestant cemetery. They're, they're much less likely to object. Um, and in, in fact, in this case, the cemetery authorities apparently have said, yeah, you know, if, if, if we can locate it, we, we have no, no objection. Um, and as I say, they, they, they couldn't actually override it anyway. The... Um, the uh, permissions are basically given on the basis of of uh, your relationship to the body, and that that appears to have been what the Ministry of Justice has, has accepted. Is that I appear to have made a good enough case that I've got a, a blood relationship to the to the person. Would it have to be a matrilineal line of descent in order to get a positive? Identification, or no, only 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 if only, only if, we're, only if we're talking about um, uh, about um, mitochondrial DNA, um, uh, and that then would depend on the state of the body. Um, uh, mitochondrial DNA tends to sort of persist longer than nuclear DNA, uh, and that's why, for instance, in the recent case of the um, Edo's shawl. It, it was um, it, it was um, mitochondrial DNA because that that apparently, as I say, was found where nuclear DNA had had been destroyed or disappeared. So it would depend very much on the state of the body. If the body, I mean, it, it, and it could it, it could be that the body is completely disappeared. I mean, there, there may be absolutely nothing there uh, at one end of the spectrum, or there could be 
a relatively well-preserved skeleton. If, the, if that's the case, then it should be possible to get nuclear DNA from the... Uh, the, the best source would be the teeth. Um, and um, nuclear DNA would certainly be the, the better option because that, that, that doesn't depend just on, uh, as you say, the matrilineal descent. Now, if there are several skeletons there, say, for example, jumbled together, um, how would the exhumation order work in that case? If, if let's say, there's multiple bodies, um, uh, you know, under, underneath where she's supposed to be buried? I, 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 I simply don't know. Um, if, that, if that is the case, um, clearly it would make things very much more complicated and, um, and also very much more costly because if you had to, you know... First of all, there's the question of objections. If anybody objected who's, who has, may have relatives buried in, the, in that area, then, then that would probably make it difficult or impossible anyway. But then if you encountered the, 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 the situation of having multiple bodies, multiple skeletons, you'd probably have to do multiple DNA sampling, and that would be very expensive. And then it would depend on who's, who's paying, I guess. I suppose the only possible little thing that you'd have to go on is the question of the coffin plate. It's known that she had a, a, a brass coffin plate um, placed there by the uh, sexton of St. Leonard's Church who, um, who paid for the funeral. And I suppose if it was possible to identify the remains of a coffin or something that had that plate uh, still in the vicinity, that that would make it slightly easier. But I, I have to say, I really don't know at this at this stage. Are you going to pursue it? I'll pursue it if there's enough, if there's enough, um, if you like, public support for it, um, and also financial support. I'm not, I'm not going to spend, you know, uh, fifty thousand pounds of my own money, even if I had it, uh, to, to to do it. Uh, but if somebody else comes along and says, okay, you know. We'll we'll support it and, 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 and under under underwrite it. Then I yeah I I I would um, I'd go along with that. And if on the off chance it does prove to be Elizabeth Davies buried in Mary Kelly's grave, have you thought about what would be next? If it was, if it was, then uh, you know. Yes, I do. I mean, I do have a personal interest here. I think that if she has met that fate and then gone to a, you know, been not been identified and been in the, in this rather um, sad little grave in in, in this cemetery, I, I would like at least to see her decently reburied with a proper memorial. And uh, I, I don't see any reason why it shouldn't be in the same cemetery, but. Um, but I think I'd, I'd like to see a proper a proper memorial, you know, because she is, at the end of the day, my grandfather's sister. Um, also, uh, if even if uh, we get to that state down the road, um, where she was proved uh, to be Elizabeth Weston Davies, um, we still have this elephant in the room of Francis Craig being Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's going to be, of course. You know potential problems with that. I mean, um... yes. I, I mean, I, I'm. You know, my thesis is that Mary Jane Kelly is Elizabeth Weston Davies. After that, I'm saying if that's the case, 
then the most likely person to have murdered her would, would be her husband for a number of reasons. But I'm not saying that I've got anything like proof that that's the case. It and just seems not, to me to be You're not trying to fit him up, for example. Thing. Yeah. So you're, yeah, you're not trying to fit him up, for example, and... Okay, he I'm not has trying to, to fit be... him up, no. Okay. Yeah. No, no, I, I'm not. Um, uh, and... and um, it's more about your relative. It's more about your great aunt. And yes, yes, absolutely, family, yeah, absolutely. And but family research. Yeah, but but it, I, I suppose there's the other the other aspect that comes in here, and that is, um, and I do make quite a lot of this in the book, and that is, um, I do believe that whoever Jack the Ripper was, he was certainly a very very knowledgeable anatomist, not necessarily a surgeon, but he knew anatomy very well and had either seen or done medical dissections himself. Because there are a lot of features of, of the of the Ripper murders that, that lead me in that direction. And I say that here as as A uh, as a surgeon and B someone that's actually taught dissection and anatomy. And there are features about those killings that I think are unmistakable uh, uh, unmistakably done by somebody that had a knowledge of medical dissection and we do know that um, that that Craig's father certainly fits that bill and if that's the case then it's possible that he would have passed that sort of knowledge on to his son and maybe maybe even that is you know uh, his son may even have been a, a medical student that you know a failed medical student or something of that sort but I do certainly think there is a, a very strong anatomy connection between the killer um, the, the, between Jack the Ripper um, and, and a skilled anatomist and before um, before you I'll came just on to say very quickly if oh, I may just interrupt there um, if you'd care to write an article for Ripperologist about that that would be great <laughs> we I'd don't be very happy to do so yeah <laughs> talking about the that's because there's there's very few anatomists or surgeons uh, in the Ripper community at large, and and uh, Jonathan was saying before you uh, uh, came on to talk the podcast, uh, he was mentioning um, in, in your book. He said that's one of the strong points of your book um, is, is the way you surgically. Uh, um, well, you can say it better than I can, Jonathan. Um, oh, just as an example of what Wynn's referring to. Is uh, yes. his explanation of the abdominal wounds on Catherine Eddowes uh, circumventing the navel uh, was something that I don't think I've ever uh, read before. So, when could you just give that as, yeah. an, as an example of what you're referring to? Yeah, when 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 a surgeon opens uh, an abdomen by a midline incision, in other words, going just right down the midline. Um, they always go around the always for some reason or other they go around the navel to the right the reason they do this is the navel is consists of very tough fibrous tissue so when you come to sew up at the end of the operation it's very difficult um, if you've cut you know to try and stitch the navel together is very difficult it's like you know the needles would just bend or snap um, so you always go around it why you go around to the right, I have got no idea. Uh, once upon a time, when I was a young surgeon, I actually thought, just out of devilment, I did a midline incision, and I went round to the left of the navel. 
and the theatre sister got hold of me and said, if you ever do that again, I shall make sure you never work in this hospital again. And so I said, why? And she said, well, you, you don't do that. You go around to the right. Go around to the right. I said, why? Because everybody does, you know, and there was no other explanation. But she was, she was outraged that I'd, I'd broken with tradition and gone, gone to the left. But it, 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 it's clearly as deep-rooted as that. Um, and that's also done in, in post-mortems because, of course, at the end of a post-mortem, you, you, you sew the abdomen up as well. But if you were going to just open somebody's abdomen, you know, as the ripper, just to, to mutilate the body, you'd have just gone straight down the middle. You wouldn't have bothered to go around to the right. You'd have just gone right, right through the middle because you, you, wouldn't, you weren't going to sew it up the, at the end anyway. And so the fact that he did circumvent... Edo's navel to the right suggests to me that that's what he was used to doing or used to seeing. And that's only one of the very, very many other aspects that leads me to think that he'd seen or done dissections. I think that that's uh, a fascinating observation because a number of the doctors at the time uh, didn't think there was any skill displayed at all. And of course... Well, uh, the one that did have agreed or not agreed over the yeah. century since. Okay, the one that did think there was um, was um, um, Phillips. Yeah, he was. Phillips, yeah. yeah, to my mind, he was by far the most experienced of all the police surgeons. The the two that didn't, and there were two specific ones that didn't, was uh, George Sequeira, who was the first doctor on the scene at the Edo's murder. That's the Quera was not a police surgeon. He was merely summoned because he was the nearest. Police knew he was the nearest doctor to the to the to Mitre Square, uh, and he didn't actually examine the body. But he just said at the inquest, "I don't think there was any surgical skill displayed." I'm not sure how he could have said that because he didn't examine the body. He didn't do the post mortem, and he didn't examine the body closely in Mitre Square, as far as I know. Um, so I think that was a, a casual throwaway remark by him. Uh, and the other person was Thomas Bond, the, um, the Westminster um, hospital surgeon, who was the uh, police, the uh, Metropolitan Police's senior forensic um, um, examiner. Uh, he said that, but he'd only seen the last body. He only saw Mary Jane Kelly. Um, and, of course, I don't think you anybody could have got, you know, made any conclusions about her death. She was she was so brutally hacked to pieces and eviscerated that I don't think that's a, that didn't uh, display any particular surgical skill at all. Um, so he was only commenting on, you know, say, on that, on, that, on that last body. But the others, Brown and Phillips in particular, who were experienced police surgeons, both said they thought there was surgical skill displayed. On top of that, I, I sent my manuscript um, in, in as much as it deals with the, um, with the murders and the post-mortems to my old teacher of surgery Professor Harold Ellis who at the age of I think 86 is still teaching anatomy at Guy's Hospital um, and Harold having read it all said yes I, I agree with you um, I think this does display uh, a knowledge of anatomy so I, I, you know, I think I've got reasonable reasonably uh, um, good backup for that. Uh, yes, indeed. You have, uh, on top of um, you speculating that 
Francis Craig may have had some medical knowledge, which, as we just heard, you, would uh, indicate to you that he could have been Jack the Ripper. You also believe that he might have written the Dear Boss letter. Um, you, you say you're not trying to fit him up for the murders, but you, you seem to kind of try to do that in your book. You identify him as a particular type of serial killer based on his uh, psychopathy. And like I said, you indica indicate that he could have been the author of the Dear Boss letter, given that it was mailed to the Central News Agency and him being a journalist. His inspiration for committing the crimes as the four, you know, murdering the four victims prior to his true target, Mary Kelly, would have came upon him as he was sitting in on the inquest of Martha Tabram. He had somewhat of a hallelujah moment. Well, I, yeah, I, 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 um, I'll come back to the dear boss letters, but the Martha Tabram inquest, I think that I, I do think that was a bit of a hallelujah moment, as you say. Uh, because if you look at the the notes that accompany the divorce petition, and I don't know to what extent people have had a chance to do that, but in the notes, um, he, sometime in 1885, I think it was, or 1886, he dismissed his solicitor um, and, 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 and applied for permission to handle the case himself. And I think that was for, for financial reasons. I think he'd run out of money. But nothing happened after that from about mid-1886 to about mid-1888. There's nothing in the notes at all. Until suddenly, on um, and I haven't got the exact date in front of me, but something like August the 10th, 1888, he suddenly, in the middle of the, of the Tabram inquest, or at least when it was adjourned after the first day, he suddenly shoots off to the, to the High Court of Justice in the, in the City of London and applies for permission to strike out paragraph 5 of the divorce petition. And when you look at the divorce petition, paragraph 5 is the one that specifically refers to Ellen McLeod and gives the addresses of her brothels. And, you, you know, you've got to say, well, why would he have done that? What, what suddenly made him rush off in the middle of this inquest, or in the middle of this, this period when you'd have thought that as a reporter he'd want to stay pretty close to the the East End, um, and take a couple of days off to go up to the High Court. Uh, it wasn't a cheap undertaking to get it, to, to, you know, because he had to get an affidavit sworn and so on, and then apply for permission to strike out this this paragraph, which doesn't seem to add anything to his, uh, you know, to his petition. It, in fact, it's it's detracting from his petition. It's making his petition less strong. Um, and the only only thing I could come up with was that he that he was he wanted something from Ellen McLeod, and the only thing I can think of that he would have wanted from Ellen McLeod was where where is Elizabeth, and that that you know it, it, the, the 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 Ripper murders start a few days after that, so you know otherwise unless unless anybody else can come up with a, another reason why he would have suddenly after two years when nothing's happened rush off to the High Court to get that paragraph 5 struck out. I think that was on the 20th of August 1888 and right. then uh, it was the registrar whose name was Owen or yeah. D.H. Owen permitted the amendment yeah. to the petition. Yeah. 
Uh, and then the next, yes, 20, 21st of August, uh, there was an affidavit filed to support the amendment, then nothing else was done then until 1889. Yeah. And then it was forgotten about. Yeah, and then of course, the, uh, but the the first thing that happened after that, of course, was the was yes, the murder of, uh, of Polly, <laughs> those Polly few details, as they happen to be in front of me. We, here we have Elizabeth Davies, aka Mary Kelly, seemingly hiding from Francis Craig, according to your theory, in the East End, and then at some point in time, Francis, I mean, she left him. But, but he, you know, files the dissolution of marriage saying that he was uh, indicating that he was unaware that she was a prostitute when they got married. Uh, and yep. then we have the story at his inquest uh, that we referred to earlier about her marriage becoming in trouble because of her amount of drinking. What would have made Elizabeth Davies fearful of Francis Craig to the point that she, according to you, would have changed her name, dyed her hair, you know, moved from place to place, tried to basically keep underground, because that that those events seem to have occurred prior to Francis Craig developing a homicidal rage. Um, against Mary Kelly, you would have think if he was just wanting to file a divorce from Elizabeth Davies, she, and she just took an assumed name, but she was located. You, you would have think that she would have been fine with that. What What do you think was in play there to keep her underground and fearful of Francis Craig? If if she was probably seemingly unaware that his intentions had changed to murder. Well, I guess I guess that she. She must have, um, if I'm right, she must have seen something in him that, you know, maybe that we're not seeing at this at this distance away, that that, that made her fearful. Um, you know, sometime in the in the in the rows that they had before she left him, maybe she saw some uh, indication of behaviour that that made her, phys- you know, physically afraid of him. Um, and then when he started to pursue her and to stalk her and to try to um, get her back, um, that may have reinforced her, her, her fear. I mean, stalking is a, you know, is a fairly, um, you know, it's, a, it's, still a, it's still something that happens today. And um, I think women that are, are stalked persistently by... Um, People, whether they're husbands or ex-boyfriends or complete strangers, uh, do find it a very, 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 very disturbing experience. And I think she did. Um, uh, and I can only, I can only think that um, that she that she was afraid of him. But I, I agree. I mean, you know, there's there has to be something something that we're not seeing here. You know, that there's something more than just wanting to leave the guy. Mm-hmm. Of course, our listeners will will need to buy a copy. Of, I don't want to give too much away of what is in your book, but we kind of indicated that his hallelujah moment at the tavern inquest would precipitate the murders of Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, and Catherine Eddowes before he 
reached his ultimate goal of murdering Mary Kelly. But then afterwards, Craig seemed to return to his life of somewhat normalcy. I mean, the way he was accustomed to living before he had even ever met Elizabeth Davies, right? He he still he re- returned to reside with his parents. He continued to edit to be an editor of newspapers and contribute pieces of journalism all the way up until his death. Never once mentioned even writing about the Jack the Ripper murders, it should be noted, that we've been able to discover. Well, um, there's one, one, one interesting little bit of journalism that I, I refer to in the book and I came across, and that was um, there was an act of parliament passed which made it easier for women to leave their husbands and, and what's more, to be supported by the husband even after they'd left. And he wrote a very, very bitter little piece about... And, and now, this doesn't mean that he's a murderer. I mean, you know, we know that Elizabeth left him, and that's, that's fact. But he wrote a very bitter, ironic little piece about women of England, you know, be of good cheer, because now you can walk out on your husband and, you know, leave him in the lurch and kick him in the teeth and so on and get away with it. Um, so he's clearly felt very bitter about the, you know, his wife having left him all those years ago, I and mean, he wrote this, 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 we're talking about sort of 14, 15 years later. Um, so, it, the, obviously, the events all that long ago still left their mark on him. Um, and then, after that, it, it, it's not quite as you say, he didn't live, exactly live a normal life, because he became progressively mentally disturbed. And at, the, at his own inquest, uh, you know, they're, 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 there's a lot of... Um, references to very strange behavior this business of jumping up and running out of houses in the middle of conversations and then finally uh, about a year before he finally cut his own throat he went to france and when he came back he he appeared to be almost a changed man his um his friend or his only real acquaintance that uh, the the rate collector from fulham said that he when he came back he told him that the French police and the English police were after him for murder, and that when he'd been in France, um, a member of the party had disappeared, and he was suspected of having murdered him, and therefore he was now being 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 uh, followed by the French police and the English police, and this he was spotted a, around. This is stated yeah, at his sorry. inquest. Yes. Yes. The, the inquest isn't reproduced in the book, is it? It, it just. Well, yes, I've got copies of all the inquest reports that were reported in the local papers, which I'd be happy to mm. send you. I, 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 I've referred to, I've got extracts from the inquest in, in the back, in the book. Right. Um, um, but, um, but, but I can certainly send you the, the, the full, the full transcripts of the, of the newspaper reports. Okay. But he was, he was spotted in Hammersmith in, in August in a heavily with a heavy um, uh, Inverness overcoat on, and uh, his umbrella up, even though it wasn't a rainy day, and and sort of rushing along the pavement, trying you know trying with the umbrella pulled down over his head and his overcoat turned up, as if he was trying to avoid people. And uh, there are references like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's this intriguing little bit, and I can't you know I'm, I don't want to sort of make too much of it, but of of the police sergeant from uh, from London 
from Met Metropolitan Police Sergeant being found dead in the in the river near Boulogne, floating, having been strangled and dumped in the river at about the same time. I can't absolutely connect it with Francis's trip to France because we don't know the dates of that. Um, but this police sergeant was found floating in the river in France, and to this day there's been no motive that's been found. In fact, it, it was a it was a puzzle to everybody um, as to why he was in France at all, because he was supposed to be off sick at the time, and yet there, this body was found floating in, the, in this river having been strangled. He wasn't robbed because he still had, had money and things on him. Um, and, you know, I just put it out as a, pos a possibility, you know, supposing he was the guy that had gone to, gone to France and um, with Francis and and had come to this end, whether or not Francis did it, um, uh, this may have caused him to think that the police were after him and uh, finally for his sort of mental faculties to begin to give way altogether and then a few months later he cuts his throat. Um, I have a question that, um, and perhaps it's giving away too much information, I don't know, you can choose to answer it or not depending on, you know, what you want um how much information you want to hold back, but um, you know, I was thinking about Francis Craig and um, stalking Elizabeth and being bitter and you know looking for her and finding her under the name of Mary Jane Kelly, living in a squalid court in Dorset Street. Um, to me, it would just make more sense, of, even from a theory-wise, that he just kills her; that he's not Jack the Ripper. Um, that he doesn't have to go through this pretense of killing four women before he kills her. That why not just kill her? I mean, a lot of people believe that Mary Kelly's not a Ripper victim anyway; that she was a one-off. I, I accept that. Yeah, I mean, the the, uh, the there is that certainly that possibility um, that that she was a one-off, and it was coincidence that there were another four so-called Ripper victims around the same time. Um, but then. Why did the why did the killing stop after after Mary Jane Kelly? Um, well, some uh, would argue that but, they didn't stop, but yeah, yeah, and there are a few more. But but I but I, you know, it <laughs> there's there are you know as many theories out there as there, right? You know, you, as, as, as there are people. Mm -hmm. um, well, along to Robert's point, you also have a problem when you talk about witness descriptions. Although witness descriptions aren't you know, 100% reliable. Um, in, in particular, the night of Mary Kelly's murder, you pretty much dismiss George Hutchison's witness statement and uh, his sighting of Astrakhan Man. You acknowledge that those, witness, that those witnesses probably saw individuals with Mary Kelly up to, the, up to leading to the time of her death, but you, you don't put Francis... Craig in Astrakhan Man's coat. Like, you no, have de def definitely not. Not from not from what one knows of, of Craig. Um, that 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 can't be a description of him. Right. Because um, he and I, and I do been, tend. Uh, yeah. He would never. Uh, she, I, she would never have allowed herself in his presence. Is what you're, you you would believe? Yeah, I don't think she would have voluntarily uh, allowed Craig anywhere near her. But I, but in terms of, of Hutchinson, I think I, I, I find his statement the least convincing of any of the of the uh, so-called Ripper witnesses. Um, and you you know I, I, the fact that he didn't come forward until a couple of days after the inquest, and 
you know, the the the, the detail of, it, that of, of Astrakhan Man is you know far far exceeds any detail that anybody saw on any of the other so so called sightings. Um, I, I I I tend to think that he was he was you know making it up if you like. Now, when Francis Craig committed suicide, he he didn't do it very well um, for yeah. a person who's apparently. Uh, you know, know how to slit someone's throat. He couldn't slit his own throat very successfully. And yeah, well, the, the, there's a reason for that as well. Uh-huh. Um, and you need to sort of uh, read the forensic uh, medicine textbooks for this. A lot of people who try and cut their own throats are unsuccessful. And the reason is that what you would instinctively do if you're trying to cut your own throat is to tip your tip your head back. To expose your throat, and as soon as you tip your head back, the great vessels, the carotid arteries, and the jugular veins pull back each side of the of the uh, vertebral column. And so, when you even if you slice quite deeply through the neck, you're not going to hit those big vessels because by pulling your neck back, you've pulled a bit out of the way. And that's why he didn't succeed. He didn't actually. He cut his own windpipe, but he didn't touch the great vessels. Uh, and I agree that that's that's um, uh, you know his anatomical knowledge sort of slightly eluded him at that point I think. Um, but uh, the other the actual killings the Ripper killings, um, the women I think their heads were not pulled right back they were in a normal up and down position, and so by slicing right across the neck he could he actually went through the uh, coronary arteries. And he so he lingered for four days after he attempted suicide. But it, it's but uh, it's immediately after attempting suicide he regretted it, right? Because he wrote a, yes. a, yep. a note for help to go get a yep. doctor, yep. And, and he wrote a couple other notes um, during the four days it took him to die. So it looked like it almost like he almost pulled through, wouldn't you say? Um, well, yeah, I mean, he would have pneumonia it, or something. Or... That, well, that's right. But if um, if he'd done it in these days, he would have pulled through because we've got antibiotics. But uh, he, he he died of something called aspiration pneumonia, which means that um, the, his uh, like you know his food and, and 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 stomach contents were spilling up and spilling into the lungs and causing this this thing called aspiration pneumonia, mm. and that's what actually killed him. Okay. Um, but no, no uh, deathbed confession, unfortunately. Um, no, I mean the the only the only thing is that the doctor looking after him in the in the West London Hospital said he acted funnily in the in the few days before he died. I don't know what that means, but you know, right. that, that's but the the nearest thing I think the nearest thing to any to a confession was the one of the notes that he left in, that were found in his bedroom, which I think was written before he actually did the. Did the uh, did the deed, and that's the one that says, um, and I haven't got it in front of me, so I'm, I'm misquoting maybe, but it's something like you you would not have wanted to see the the doctor's work, um, but I was but I was suffering from very severe uh, pressure of nerves at the time, so he puts it in the past tense, and he says you would not have wanted to see the doctor's work, and that doesn't really make sense if he, if he. If he'd been successful in cutting his own throat, 
there would have been no doctor's work for anyone to see. So I think he was referring to something in the past, and I speculate that that uh, that he may have thought of himself or called himself the doctor, um, and that his the the uh, apparent dissections of the of the corpses were, were an attempt to make it look like the work of a doctor or a medical student. Uh, and when he says he wouldn't have wanted to see the doctor's work, he was referring to what the doctor, the Ripper, did to those women. There's nothing more than that, and he, and he just tailed off. He didn't. He didn't complete the letter. Now I'm going to uh, wrap it up here pretty shortly. I wanted to get Robert and Paul's opinion on. Like I said in my introduction, the identity of Mary Kelly has been a long sought after mystery uh, for Ripperologists ever since I've been involved in, in looking at the case, and I'm sure Robert as well. Chris Scott made it pretty much his life work. Um, he passed away a few years ago. So we've, we've seen suggestions come and go quite often. How, how plausible Elizabeth Weston Davies rank amongst people who have been posited as being Mary Kelly in the past. Um, I'll jump in first. Uh, yeah. Personally, uh, you know, I don't know. I've, I've, I've read four chapters uh, of your book, um, Win, and, um, y- you know, I've stayed away from the message boards. Uh, <laughs> there tends to be a lot of venom on there. There tends to be a lot of defensive <laughs> people. A lot of people have their own agendas. They want to defend their own ideas. My approach to the subject of the, the Ripper in general, whether it be the victim's or, you know, your favorite suspect or whoever. Um, it may be in the case. Um, my approach has always been to just look at the material and just judge the material. Um, just not go off on a tangent saying, no, that's not right. No, that can't be true. No, no, no. Um, so, you know, I plan to read the book when it comes out um, within the next week here. And... Um, I'll know more then. Like I, I really can't say more than that, Jonathan. Other, other than, um, I, I, I will look at it objectively as I try to look at everything objectively. Um, I'm not one of those ones that's, um, you know, ext- extremely cynical. But then again, as anyone knows, I don't have a favorite suspect, and you know, I don't. I've never written a suspect book, um, and and I never will. Um, but, you know, I, I think people should, you know, give. Uh, Dr. Wynn Weston Davies the respect that he deserves and at least looking at the material objectively and not judging him before they've actually read all that he has to say in print. I completely agree with that, Robert. As indeed do I. But uh, I gathered that uh, I have looked at uh, one of the message boards with a degree of horror at some of the uh, venom just seems to have been a very mild word for what you suffered. Um, so I guess you learned the hard well, I, way. I, 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 um, I, I received a very nice email from um, uh, Keith Skinner the other night to say, "Get get off the message boards. Just tell them tell them you're not going to take part anymore." <laughs> so, it's uh, Keith. Keith got through to you directly. I told the same thing to Robert Smith. So. Yeah. Uh, you would have had the message coming <laughs> strongly from two directions, but okay. Well, I'll take not, I'll take your I, advice. I would hasten to just to say that not all the message boards are like that, and you will 
uh, where it, that people are more professional, they will research out what you've done, um, as is happening on the other sites at the moment. But uh, I would be very surprised to to see the venom that goes on on the other uh, site being directed at you. Um, well, I, I, I appreciate appreciate what you're saying, and uh, incidentally. If somebody comes, if somebody comes along and uh, conclusively uh, proves my theory wrong, I'd be perfectly happy with that. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm I, I'm putting a for, I'm putting forward my honest um, theory here. I'm absolutely the first one to say there there is no proof at this stage of what I'm what I'm saying is correct. It's it's a theory. It's it's what I what I. Have the conclusion I've come to as a result of many years' research, and uh, that, that's all I can well, do is to put it put it in front of the public and let them make up their own mind. That's what theories are, really. If they weren't, yes. if they were proven, they wouldn't be a yeah, theory, yeah. would they? That's and, right. I should, uh, and I imagine, when regardless of what we say here and on the message boards and elsewhere, that you're going to continue your research into Elizabeth and and Francis and everybody else that you've been researching. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'd, I'd certainly like to do that. Whatever, however, however it turns out, um, I, I think I've turned up some some pretty interesting uh, possibilities here. And uh, um, you know, I think there's a, uh, for instance, I think that j- just the Mondral family that would make a book in themselves. Uh, they're, they're, you know, just going into their background and and what made them tick. Um, don't and certainly, I'll don't beat do- my ideas away. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I mean, at the end of the day, what you've you have given us a tale of two uh, very interesting people, and the the same researchers that might you know be um, pointing out errors as far as the um, addresses that the Mondrells might have owned and mm-hmm. when they owned it or whether they yeah. were renters or not are also the same people who have yet to discover a single trace of Elizabeth Davies after August of 1885. Uh, and yeah. so some, something happened to this woman. We just they are don't... also yeah. the same people who, who said, hang on a minute, this might be the real deal. Exactly. So yeah. uh, they've supported the, the, uh, the bookers as well as... You know, the, which I think is a good thing. If they're going to, to research the book, the book is put up there for people to research. And if they research it and they find yeah. that it's wrong, then that's fair enough. It's not the same as being rude. But I think that there are very few feathers left, as I say, uh, in, in, in the way I've reviewed the book for Ripperologist, um, uh, left in to put in the caps of, of anybody anymore uh, and identifying Mary Kelly as one of them and of the candidates put forward so far I mean at least uh, Elizabeth matches in, in a number of ways she was Welsh her name was Davies her father had a good position, albeit in a slate works and not an iron works. Uh, she went to London, hopefully, if she did uh, work in the West End for the Montreals or for anybody else, then then that would tie in as well. So, and and the Montreals are a French, which she was, if she was running brothel, she was a French madame. 
and there's no other candidate being put forward for Mrs. McCloyd uh, in the divorce petition. So, you know, there's a lot of points there that, that match with Mary Kelly's story and Jonto, of course, even if you start to take away certain elements of the story as being unproven, there's still quite a lot there that's linking her and, and looking at some of the other candidates that are being put forward and discussed seriously uh, who have absolutely no point of contact with the, with the real Mary Kelly. Uh, you're miles ahead uh, at the moment, so uh, I, th I think people really need to read the book and, and get a grip on what you're saying and listen to the podcast. Okay, thank you very much for that, Paul. I I, um, I appreciate that, and uh, it's been a it's been a great pleasure talking to uh, to three really really respected uh, experts in this field because. Um, I'm sure I can still learn a great deal from all, all three of you. Well, that's very nice of you to have said that as well. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much, everybody. Right. Thank you, Ian. And that was Rippercast, episode 64, The Real Mary Kelly with Wynn Weston Davies. I'd like to thank Wynn one more time for being on the show today, as well as Paul Begg and Robert McLaughlin. It was great to have the two of them back. The book, The Real Mary Kelly, is available through Blink Publishing in the UK, so pick up your copy either in the bookstores or on Amazon.co.uk. This podcast is hosted by the Casebook Jack the Ripper website and can be found at casebook.org slash podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email them to administrator at casebook.org or join us at the Rippercast True Crime Discussion Group on Facebook. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>